Episode 7. Seven years of blissful marriage, seven years of training to become a radiologist with certification in nuclear medicine. Thanks for offering, but I'll pass on that one. Seven bones in your hind and midfoot. Tom Brady now has seven Super Bowl rings, which is absolutely insane. As exciting as that accomplishment is, there is nothing like the energy and atmosphere of overtime in Game 7. Okay, enough of this. Episode 7, Beyond MD, here we go. Welcome everyone to Episode 7 of the Beyond MD Podcast. Our RSP season is upon us, and that's the episode for today. We've got a very special guest, Tim Sesnick, who is one of the most respected Canadian voices in tax and personal finance. Before we get to Tim, I'm going to try and break down the basics of the RRSP, the Registered Retirement Savings Plan. So here goes. So the RRSP came to fruition in 1957, and currently about two-thirds of Canadians use it. So there's an annual contribution limit to the RRSP, which is up to 18% of income, up to a maximum currently of $27,830. So if you don't make a contribution one year, well then you can catch up in a subsequent year. So how does it work? Let's say this year you put in $27,830, which is by no means chump change. Well, that's going to create a nice tax deduction. So when you put the money into the RRSP, that offers tax-sheltered growth. And this helps particularly for fixed income and foreign dividends, as we're going to discuss in the episode. Now, the RRSP is particularly useful if you feel like you're going to be at a lower tax bracket in retirement. So what happens uh, in retirement? Well, basically, when you turn 71, you've got a few options. You can cash out the RRSP, you can use it to purchase an annuity, or uh, you can convert it to a registered retirement income fund, an RRIF, also known as a RIF. So the latter is, is the most common option. So what happens is that in your 71st year, you convert it to a RIF, and in the year after that, you have to start making regular withdrawals. Well, how much? It used to be 5.28%, but due to legislation introduced during COVID-19, that's been reduced down to 3.96%. So 3.96% mandatory withdrawal in the first year after you turn 71, and it increases each year after that. All right, so what can you invest in using an RRSP? Well, basically stocks, bonds, ETFs, mutual funds, and GICs. You're not able to purchase real estate directly, but did you know that you can use an RRSP for a mortgage, including an arm's length mortgage? Now, I didn't know about this at all until I talked to Dmitry Ranov and Kevin Milo, both of whom are physicians. They are co-founders of Physician Empowerment, and both are great resources on finance for anyone hoping to learn some more. All right, so on to the benefits of RSPs. First and foremost is the home buyer's plan. How does that work? So for anyone with an RSP, you can take out up to $35,000 tax-free to make a down payment on a home if you are a first-time home buyer. So if you and your spouse are first-time home buyers, you can take out up to $70,000. But this comes with a bit of a catch. So any contributions made within 90 days are not eligible for withdrawal under the home buyer's plan. And the money taken out has to be paid back within 15 years. Note that these paybacks do not count as a tax deduction and they will not impact your contribution room. All right. In medicine, we're all about lifelong learning. So it's only fitting that the RSP has a lifelong learning plan built within it. How does that work? You can take out up to $10,000 in a year, up to $20,000, and this money can be used to fund education for yourself, your spouse, or your common law partner. Please note that the 90-day rule applies for this, and you cannot use this money uh, to fund education for your children. When does the money have to be paid back? Within 10 years. 
Okay, let's talk about BC for a second. So I learned that BC physicians can get matching contributions for any investments made into registered accounts. This includes RRSPs, TFSAs, and corporate individual pension plans. So if in BC you're not contributing to a registered plan, you are leaving money on the table. How much are you leaving? Well, you can get contributions up to $9,000 in a year depending on your length of service. Listen, I love BC. I did medical school out there, and after learning this, I love BC even more. Go BC. Anyways... Every investment product comes with pros and cons. What are the cons of an RRSP? Well, upon death, there can be a wealth transfer issue if you do not have a spouse. So what happens? If you don't have a spouse, then the money in the RRSP basically has to be taxed on the terminal tax return. There are also contribution limits, as we've discussed, and over time, these tend to be less than the contribution limits available with an individual pension plan. And as we've touched on, investments are somewhat limited in the sense that you cannot directly purchase real estate through an RSP and you cannot invest in private equity. All right, that's enough from me. You're going to learn a lot more from Tim Sesnick. So Tim Sesnick is one of Canada's most respected figures in tax, personal finance, and wealth management. He founded Water Street Family Offices, which was a leading wealth advisory firm, which he ended up selling to Scotiabank in 2010. At Scotia, Tim was Director of Advanced Wealth Planning, and currently he's CEO and co-founder of Our Family Office, one of Canada's leading wealth advisory firms for affluent families. Uh, Tim has been writing a weekly column for the Globe and Mail called Tax Matters since 1996, and he's authored 18 best-selling books, including 101 Tax Secrets for Canadians. And with that, here's my interview with Tim Sesnick. All right, Tim, uh, welcome to the podcast. Where does this podcast find you? Well, today, uh, Yen, I'm actually working from my home, probably like a lot of other people uh, in Burlington, Ontario. Um, I grew up in Oakville, uh, never really moved too far from home, live in Burlington now. My office is normally downtown Toronto, uh, but I have to say I'm actually enjoying uh, uh, skipping the commute. So I have two more hours a day uh, that I can spend at home and with my family. So it's, it's been good in that respect. It's been good. Oh, very good. Yeah, it's either more more time with family or, or more time for work. It's hard to get away from work these days for, for a lot of us, right? But um, there's no balance. Yeah. yeah. So Tim, I'll just jump right into the questions, I guess. And you know, the first one, it's basically a scenario that I think many small business owners face anyone who's incorporated. And I guess the belief is that, you know, the corporation is a great tax deferral vehicle, which I, I do think it is. And then a common question or scenario arises where one may think that, uh, what's the need for a second tax deferral vehicle like the RRSP? Sometimes this is just the way we think. Sometimes this is the advice that we're given. And I guess the concern is that uh, when we get to retirement, you know, depending on what the personal situation is, if we have to pull money out of the corporation and an RRSP, then with the withdrawals, we may just be back into the next, into the highest tax bracket. I guess a good problem to have. I guess what's your advice to somebody who presents this scenario? What's your take on this? Uh, good question. Uh, I think that, you know, it's important to realize that a corporation is a very different animal than an RRSP, for example. They they work differently. Um, for example, the RSP, you get a tax deduction when you put the money in. It grows tax sheltered. And yes, like a corporation, you do pay, pay some tax when you pull it out. Uh, but a corporation is a different uh, thing altogether. Um, you know, as you know, there are some tax benefits for sure to a corporation. And that's that's why one of the reasons we set them up. Um, it's, but the, the, the main benefit to a corporation is the deferral of tax. So you earn income in your corporation, you pay less tax in your company than you will, uh, if you had earned it personally. 
And to the extent you can leave the money in the corporation, you're actually deferring some tax. So that that's that's one of the key benefits of a corporation. Uh, but that's again different than um, than an RSP. So I actually think it's important to have both because having both really provides you with maximum flexibility. So when you decide to actually uh, you know pay for life later once you retire or you're no longer uh, practicing full time, you'll have flexibility. You can choose to pull money out of your corporation, and even then you can choose you know, salary versus dividends or bonus versus dividends. Um, or you can pull it out of your RSP, which eventually you'll have to do um, once you get hit a certain age, as you know. So I actually think it makes a lot of sense to have both. Uh, and if you really wanted to, you know, get into the nitty gritty math on it, you're going to find that there's no one right answer all the time. That is, you know, should you pull money out of your corporation and put it into an RSP or should you leave it in your corporation? It actually depends on a number of factors. Uh, but I think because your situation can change from year to year, how much you income or earning your in terms of income uh, or the makeup of your portfolio, the kinds of income you're earning can change over time. Having both is actually a really good idea. Okay, so I think this segues nicely into my next question. And I'd like to look at investment returns when you're comparing the corporation to an RSP. So let's just say your income goes into the corporation, then you have a decision to make. Do I keep the money in the corporation and invest through the corporation or do I pay myself salary and then invest through an RSP? And just comparing like a totally balanced portfolio. So we're looking at a mix of growth stocks, Canadian and U.S. dividend paying stocks and some fixed income instruments, totally balanced. It seems like some of the work that's been published, if I look at Jamie Golenbeck's work and some work by the Looney Doctor, that over the long term, like I'm talking 20 plus years, it seems like investment returns may slightly win out in an RSP when you're looking at a balanced portfolio compared to the corporation. And I'm wondering if this is a mindset that you share as well. You know, I think what you'll find is a general rule, putting money into your RSPs and maximizing RSP contributions is a good idea. Uh, That is true, even if you have to pull it out of your corporation to do that. Uh, But there are limits to how much, as you know, as to how much you can put into an RSP. And so a lot of professionals are going to be earning more than than that and are going to want to save even more than what they can put in their RSPs. And in those cases, I would say leave it in your corporation uh, without pulling it out mm-hmm. because to pull it out of your company um, and, and invest it personally outside of an RSP is not going to make a whole lot of sense from a tax point of view. So just to summarize that, um, paying yourself extra salary or bonuses, which is a deduction to the company, right? Positive on that side. Personally, you'll pay tax on it, but if you get a deduction for the amount because you're putting it into your RSP, then personally, it's a wash. There's no tax to pay, and that does make good sense um, for most balanced portfolios over the long term. Um, but once you've already maximized your RSP contributions, then leaving money in your corporation to grow, um, hopefully tax efficiently, but maybe focusing on growth uh, investments inside your corporation can make, can make good sense. Okay, perfect, Tim. And, you know, the next thing I just want to talk about is is asset allocation, because I think that's something that we all tend to struggle with from time to time. And I did touch on this on one of my earlier podcasts where we were talking about, okay, if we're going to invest through the corporation, then maybe it makes more sense to focus on growth, you know, capital gains. But if we are, in fact, going to use an RSP, you know, in, in conjunction with the corporation, perhaps you can just give us a basic overview of, of the types of assets that would be best suited for the RSP. Sure, sure. Um, we call this asset location, by the way. Asset allocation is your decision uh, between 
cash, bonds, stocks, other kinds of investments, um, or you know, fixed income and growth. Um, that's asset allocation. Asset location is where do I actually hold those dollars? In my RSP, personal account, in a corporation, in a trust, in a partnership. Um, and the asset allocation decision is driven mostly by tax taxes. And um, while some people would disagree with some aspects of what I'm, what I'm about to say, that, but I, I still think what I'm saying is, is uh, generally correct. It's generally good advice. And that is this, that if you're going to earn highly taxed interest income, uh, you probably want to have that in a tax-sheltered environment to the extent you can. So that would mean, for example, in an RSP or in a TFSA, and to some extent, maybe even in a family trust, if you have a family trust, because earning, uh, you know, any income earned in that family trust can be taxed in the hands of the beneficiaries. So you're sprinkling income around. Well, if there is no income because it's all growth investments, you're not really benefiting from the trust. So, you know, uh, I would say fixed income kinds of investments like bonds, GICs, term deposits, um, mortgages, things that are earning interest uh, as a general rule. If you can hold them inside your registered plans, that's that's the first place you probably want to hold them. Um, that's not to say that your RSP should not have equities. Okay, that's not, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying to the extent you're going to have interest-bearing investments in your life, if you can shelter it in a registered environment, then that's the best place to start. Um, like like I said, uh, family trusts are a unique thing. But I, the biggest mistake I see with family trusts is that people invest for growth in the family trusts. They generate no income whatsoever. They've got these loans to the family trust that they've made, and they're trying to split income with the with their family members who are kid kids who are beneficiaries, and they're they're not generating any income. So you're not really benefiting from the trust. So that that's another example where, again, fixed income could belong in the trust. In a corporation, the issue with investment income in a corporation is that there's a couple things to keep in mind. First, the more investment income you earn, the less likely you'll be able you'll be able to claim the five hundred thousand dollars small business deduction, right? now gets ground down or disappears the more investment income or passive income that you have. So if I can encourage you to think in one direction here, as far as the corporation goes, maybe focus on some of your growth investments in the company where you're not triggering a lot of income every year. There might be some dividend, income, but uh, not a lot of realized capital gains. It's there for longer term growth. If you're going to have money inside your, your corporation, that's also earning active business income. Those are the kind of investments you probably want to have. And even, even separately from that, you may want to have a separate holding company to move your investments into. So your active operating business that's carrying on your practice is a different, maybe a different corporation than the one that's ultimately holding your investments. Yeah, Tim, I think there's some great information there, uh, particularly on family trusts, which I think is going to be a whole other podcast episode. But I do want to ask a follow-up question on foreign dividend income, because it's confusing for some of us to best understand where to hold U.S. stocks that pay dividends. And I think part of that's with the with the advice we receive as well, because some people will say that, listen, if a company is more about capital gains, by all means, put it in the core. But others will say that if the U.S. company does pay a dividend, then it should never be held within a corporation. And I guess that's due to the punitive treatment of uh, foreign dividend income due to withholding tax. So I'll throw an example out there like Starbucks. I'm just trying to get a sense of you know, where should we be holding stocks like this? Like, is that more suitable for an RSP? Uh, I'd love your insight on this. Well, I, the first things first, I, I don't put, don't let the tax tail wag the investment dogs. If you'd like an investment, uh, I'd say it's a growth investment. Um, maybe it pays foreign dividends because it's a U.S. security or whatever. Uh, 
I wouldn't avoid that kind of a security just because it's I'm holding it inside my corporation or inside my my uh, my registered plan. Think about the investment merits first. That's the most important thing. Now, beyond that, uh, all other things being equal, um, you know, a corporation can actually claim uh, foreign taxes paid uh, as as a foreign tax credit. There's companies pay taxes, and so therefore may be able to claim a foreign tax credit for the foreign taxes paid. That's you know not that's not true in an RSP. You're not filing a tax return for your RSP right? or your registered plan. So uh, that's a little bit maybe a different issue there. Um, you know, if you're going to pay foreign taxes, you'd like to be able to claim the credit if you can if you can for it. That's that's what I would suggest there. But again, don't let the investment tail wag the 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 dog. Without going into you know all the details on an individual pension plan and IPP, I, I did want to just bring it up just for kind of comparison's sake because I think. A lot of us who are incorporated and we pay ourselves salary over years eventually are going to become eligible for this. So, and and before I kind of phrase the question, I just want to let the audience know I'm not against RSPs on the podcast. I strictly just I try to explore every uh, each topic from each angle, pros and cons. But when I look at an IPP um, over time, my understanding is if you're paying like $150,000 in in salary T4 income, then the contributions to an IPP can be larger, which I guess ultimately would result in, you know, a greater nest egg in your retirement, offers creditor protection, maybe a bit more flexibility when it comes to private equity, real estate, and then maybe less issues when it comes to wealth transfer when, when somebody's going to pass away. Whereas an RSP sometimes doesn't offer that flexibility. So my my question is, with everything I've kind of mentioned, am, am I missing something? Like, because to me, it seems like for those who would be eligible, once you hit a certain age, wouldn't an IPP be more advantageous than an RRSP? Uh, the answer, the short answer is a yes, it can be. Uh, it can be. So just to, you know, let your listeners inform your listeners a bit. So an, an IPP is an individual pension plan. It's not, it's a, it's, it's legally, it's a registered pension plan, just like, you know, you'd find at a large publicly traded company, right? It's a, it's a pension plan. Uh, but usually for, either one individual or more commonly for you and a spouse and your kids. So maybe it's four or five people, uh, whatever it might be. So you might have a few plan members, but it's 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 a very um, small pension plan for a very small defined group of people in the family. Um, and and um, uh, RSPs, as you know, have a maximum contribution limit every year. Mm-hmm. IPPs are a little bit different because the, the contribution to the registered pension plan is going to be dependent on actuarial calculations. So usually it makes sense like once you're 40 years of age or older, uh, and the older you get and the less that you've put into this pension plan, probably the more you can actually contribute to it. Right. Um, the thing I would say about an IPP, so it, it, the IPP does allow your corporation to make larger contributions with, to the plan, which are deductible okay, mm-hmm. to the corporation. Um, the money, similar to an RSP, grows tax-sheltered inside this pension plan. If you do contribute to uh, an IPP, you uh, are going to be limited to using to not being able to use an RRSP anymore, or you know, you six hundred dollar contribution you make annually, it's it's nominal. So your RSP will be effectively replaced by the IPP. In fact, that's usually how they're structured when you set up the IPP. Quite often, your RSP assets will be transferred to uh, the IPP even when you start. Okay. Um, but the contributions are bigger. And that provides a bigger deduction to your company. And that's one key reason why a lot of successful uh, professionals, uh, business owners will set up an IPP. Keep in mind, 
that you are obligated to contribute to this plan. So you can't sort of, not like an RSP where you can pick and choose whether you want to contribute one year or not. You've got to contribute every year. So it's important that your income in, in your professional corporation be uh, consistent, that it be there every year, that you have a need for the deduction every year, that that's a consistent thing in your life. And that's probably the case for most professionals. Um, some businesses, income levels go up and down like you know crazy and they're not as sure to be uh, good candidates for an IPP. Uh, so anyway, I think IPP can make really good sense. Um, you can control the investments inside the IPP very similarly to an RSP. Um, so that's not a concern. There are triannual or every three years, you've got to do an actual evaluation. So there's some costs associated with that. They're not big costs, but they got to get done. Uh, so there's a bit more of administration involved, but but you know it's definitely worth looking into if you are um, if you're if you've got a, another call it 10 15 20 years to go in your practice uh, and you want to maximize what you're setting aside in a registered plan one last thing I'll say about IPPs your RSP because you kind of hit, uh, hinted at it when you pass away uh, the pension plan um, unlike an R, uh, like an RSP doesn't become taxable uh, what happens is if you pass away, all the other members of the plan, which might be your spouse and kids, continue as members of the plan and the assets go to them effectively and they'll pull the money over time. If all the family members are gone, they've all passed away and there's still money sitting in the plan, then there's a surplus in that pension plan and it goes back to the company at that point in time. Uh, it doesn't disappear. It goes back into the corporation on a taxable basis. Uh, so the money doesn't disappear, but it, it has a slightly different estate planning treatment than an RSP would. Hey, Tim, I think that's a really great overview on IPPs. Thank you for doing that, because I do think it's a product that is somewhat under-discussed, but one that I think can be useful depending on personal circumstances. So thanks again. Now, I do want to shift gears a little bit to a few philosophical questions. So I think in the last few years, we've seen some new rules come in, like the passive income rules for corporations, which essentially you know, dictate uh, how much we grind down that small business deduction. Mm -hmm. And also now there's talk about potentially hiking the capital gains inclusion rate. And I think that, you know, these discussions and these new rules, they're leading a lot of incorporated small business owners to think that it may not be a good idea to be too reliant on, on the corporation. And in fact, I think all these topics strengthen the case for a vehicle like the RRSP. I guess what I'm thinking is that any future rules and regulations that are going to come in, they're most likely going to be targeting corporations again, whereas a vehicle like the RSP is essentially untouchable. I'm just curious if you have a say on this. Um, yeah, that's not inaccurate. I think it, it's definitely true that the RSP is more of a vehicle of the masses, you know, and, and this government we have today is certainly has said, you know, they're, they're, they want to help the middle class, which was your average Canadian and, and so to touch RSPs or significantly alter the rules around them would be, um, you know, maybe political suicide. Whereas the owners of corporations are considered to be um, probably they're considered to be wealthy, wealthier, whether that's true or not is a totally separate issue. Um, and probably not as true as the government likes to think. But having said that, um, yeah, the rules around corporations are, are more complex as we've seen. And back in 2017, as you recall, they changed the rules and they were really targeting professionals. They were targeting doctors, dentists, uh, accountants, lawyers. Um, and so could that happen again? You know, I think 
No, yeah, sure. It could. I think one thing that they, uh, there are some other areas they haven't touched yet, which I think they'll focus on first before they come back and look at corporations again. I think the rules around corporations have changed enough in the last three years. I don't think we're going to see anything again, um, hopefully not in this government's lifetime. But you're right. It, if anything is going to be uh, affected um, more quickly, it'd be corporate, corporate shareholders than, than RSP owners. Okay, and then just on the capital gains inclusion, I'm not going to ask you for a prediction because I'm sure you're getting that all the time. For me, it's just interesting because I think most people automatically will think that in terms of who's enjoying or realizing capital gains, people will tend to think, well, maybe it's it's the top few percent or the wealthiest Canadians. But then I think there were there was some material coming out from the Fraser Institute where they looked at tax returns over several years and they were implying that, well, maybe it's not just the wealthiest wealthiest Canadians and capital gains are perhaps enjoyed by or realized by a larger subset of the population. And so I guess it kind of creates a, a spectrum where some people think, well, you know, if they raise the inclusion rate, it's affecting the top few percent, whereas other people think that's not the case. And then others also say that if they raise the inclusion rate, then that could potentially hamper the economic recovery and deter people from investing, you know, within and outside Canada. I guess where where on the spectrum do you do you fall? That's a good that's a good question, and I'm I am absolutely convinced the inclusion rate will increase. Um, you have to if you understand the history behind it a little bit, then and then I think you, you, the picture becomes a bit clearer. So, you know, the inclusion rate. Back, capital gains were not taxed before 1972. That that's that was the year they they became taxable, and only half of capital gains were taxable at that time. Um, and the rates stayed at 50% taxable uh, right up until the 1990s uh, for the most part. But throughout throughout the almost the entire 1990s, uh, we saw the capital gains inclusion rate at 75%. Um, and one of the reasons that was the case was that our debt to GDP ratio at that time was at about 67%. Okay. Very, very high. And, and our, our debt, our, our national debt got under control. Um, it dropped to about, you know, 30%, a little high, a little over 30%. But in the last year alone, it's, it's gone back up to probably 65%. So very, very high levels of debt right now. Not surprisingly with the, with the amount of money the government's been giving away and, and, and for, for some good reasons, um, but that begs the question, how do you pay for that? And I think it's inevitable that they're going to have to increase taxes. And the capital gains inclusion rate, um, and I read the same report that was done by the, the Fraser Institute, but even they acknowledged in the report that, and it, it is true that probably three quarters of capital gains are realized by people with incomes over 150000 So now that, that still means a quarter of all capital gains are realized by people with lower levels of income. But if you take a look at the proportion of gains that are realized by people in the quote unquote middle class, mm-hmm. which I, I, you know, I'm not sure how the government defines that because they don't even tell us. But let's let's say let's say people earning between fifty and hundred, the, the percentages get to be relatively low. So all that is to say is the government I think will take the view that affecting the capital gains rate does affect wealthier Canadians, and that's why reason why I think it's going to happen. The question to me is not if, but when. Um, it could be as soon as the next federal budget, which we don't have a date for yet, but could be um, could be in March, could be the end of March. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it was delayed a little bit this year because of everything that's going on. But if it doesn't happen in at the federal budget in the spring, it could happen in the summer when no one's watching. Like that's what... <laughs> That's what they did with yeah. the, 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 the small business rules to change the corporate tax rate rule at that time. Could be July or it could be October. So we just don't know. Um, 
but I think uh, that's one, I think, inevitable change that we're going to see. And the other thing to keep in mind, our tax rate on capital gains has been fairly consistent with the U.S. rates, a little bit higher, yeah, about 20, 25%, 26%, whereas the U.S. is at 20%. But with the uh, the new administration in the U.S., uh, we could easily see in the U.S. capital gains rates go up. And that's just more incentive for the Canadian government to do the same thing. Yeah. So, you know. I, I, I think it's going to happen. We are seeing people uh, right now doing planning to try to maybe in some cases trigger or realize capital gains at the current rate. Um, because if they do bump up the rate to 75%, then all of a sudden um, that increases your capital gains taxes by 50%, right? It's, it, so it's, it's pretty high. Yeah, listen, that, that's great, Tim. I mean, I, I didn't even ask for a prediction and you, and you gave it. So I, I appreciate that. Uh, very candid answer. So one thing, you know, I've learned about over time is uh, the spousal RSP contribution. I think for people who are incorporated, for many people, if you're trying to figure out your cash flow and retirement, I think it can make a lot of sense. So I wanted to pick your brain on, you know, kind of how the spousal RSP works and specific things like who would need the contribution room, who's going to get the deduction, and then what's kind of the time window where you need to be careful for attribution rules, that, that type of thing. Sure. So, so I think spousal RSPs do make good sense. Um, you know, it's one of the easy, easy ways to split income. So when you have one spouse that's got a significantly higher income than the other one, and you expect that to be the case in retirement as well, then it can make sense for the higher income spouse to set aside money in a, an RSP for the lower income spouse. So for example, in my case, uh, with, with my wife, um, I can contribute to a spousal RSP. I get the tax deduction because I'm contributing. But when the money is pulled out of the plan, withdrawn later, she will pay the tax. That's where you get the splitting of income. Mm -hmm. certain, as long as certain conditions are met. So I'll talk about that in one second. Um, but, you know, I, I think the the key is that um, you want to contribute by December 31st each year. That's that's um, unlike a normal RSP deadline. Uh there's no technical deadline, but it makes sense to contribute by December 31st each year because the way the rules work are uh, if my wife pulls money out of her RSP that I've contributed to, and if I've contributed in that calendar year or in the prior two calendar years, then um, to the extent I've contributed uh, to the plan, then I could pay the tax on the withdrawals. So if I contributed, let's say, in 2021 to a spousal RSP, say I put $20,000 in. And the next year in 2022, she pulls $20,000 out of her plan, I will pay the tax. So that's not what we want. Right. So by contributing December 31st, you actually shorten the window of time that you have to wait before your spouse can actually pull money out and and uh, and not have to go through that attribution. So that makes that makes good sense. Um, you know, that that's one of the ways to split income. Obviously, there's the pension income splitting rules, which allow, you know, if in an IPP, for example, you could pull money out of an IPP or another pension plan and, and split the, 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 the withdrawals, the tax on the withdrawals with the spouse. That's another way to split income. But I think spouse RSPs uh, do make uh, really good sense. Yeah, Tim, I think so far we've been discussing RSPs in a very positive light. And I mean, as we should. But I, I do like to explore all topics from every angle possible. So I'm going to play devil's advocate for a little bit. And uh, one thing I want to bring up is, is real estate. And, and this actually stemmed from one of your, your recent articles. I think it was in December. It was called Finance Tips for 2021. And in that article, you talked about real estate and, and the potential benefits of owning real estate. And I can tell you what, that point really resonated with me. Because when I look at the big picture for real estate, like just considering the low mortgage rates that we have right now, 
and looking at Canada's immigration targets for the next three, four years, to me, the big picture looks really promising for real estate. And, and let's just face it, you can't just take your RSP money and start buying real estate properties. Whereas with a corporation, if you've got a holding company on the side, then you can move money into the whole co and acquire real estate. And in my opinion, that's one of the benefits of a corporation yeah. or advantages of a corp compared to an RSP. And if I can just take it maybe a bit further in terms of flexibility of an RSP, I think we've already talked about potential wealth transfer issues. So if you pass away and you don't have a spouse, then all the money in that RSP is going to be taxed. And then if you decide to convert the RSP to a RIF when you're 71, then after that, there are strict guidelines, right, for how much money needs to be withdrawn from the RIF each year, and it increases each year. Yep. So I guess with all this in mind, it makes me wonder, like, the RSP in many ways doesn't really seem that like that flexible of a product. Like, where do I have this right? Where do I have this wrong? You know what? I, 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 would, I wouldn't say... Okay. In terms of flexibility, uh, you're right. You can't own real estate inside of an RSP. I, that's for sure. That's true. But but you're going to have other asset classes in your portfolio as well, right? So you've gonna, you're going to have equities. You're going to have fixed income. And, and and some of those investments could and should probably be held in an RSP. I still like the, the plan. That doesn't mean you should ignore other opportunities because I do agree that there are other asset classes like real estate, which can make really good sense to invest in. Uh, and you're probably going to be doing that either personally or through your corporation, uh, probably through a corporation if you're investing in multi, you know, multi-unit residential or residential real estate rental properties. Um, you want the asset protection that a corporation can provide in those cases generally. So, um, yeah, I, I think there's a role for both. I really do think there there is. And, and the RSP, because of the limits on how much you can put in anyway, most successful business owners and professionals will have more money invested than they could put in their RSP anyway. So that's where I think it does make sense to have uh, some real estate or other things. And, and you hit, you know, this may be a topic for another day is what is the right kind of asset base or what kind of asset classes should you be looking at as part of a, a well-diversified portfolio? Cause we believe at our firm that it should be broader than just traditional stocks, bonds, and cash. You should have real estate. You should have private equity. You should have private debt. You should have other things in your portfolio. But that's a topic for another day. Yeah, no, I mean, Tim, I, I echo that as well. I couldn't agree more. Now, just some RSP tips and tricks. And for this next question, I have to give credit for to uh, Dimitri Ranev and uh, Kevin Milo. They run a venture called Physician Empowerment. And they actually introduced me to this concept. So they talked about uh, an arm's length mortgage. So I had no idea that if you're RSP, I guess, if it's accumulated enough room, then you can use it uh, for an arm's length mortgage. Can you talk to us a bit more about this? And if one is going to do it, obviously a bit riskier, but can you do it and, and how would you go about it? So so although your RSP cannot own real estate directly, it can hold a mortgage that is secured by Canadian real estate. So you could lend money uh, to just about anybody uh as long as it's secured by real estate, it's a mortgage. You can lend money. You can take money out for yourself personally, using your own Canadian real estate as collateral on the, on a mortgage, uh, or you can lend to somebody else. As long as again, Canadian real estate is the asset that's being um, a pledge as collateral. So you can do that. Those two approaches, whether you lend take money out for yourself, which is what we, which is what we call a non arms length mortgage, or you lend money to somebody else, a third party, which is an arms length mortgage. They're two very, very different approaches. And when, it, when, when you, you, know, you talk about an arm's length mortgage, I don't look at that decision as anything different than an investment. It's an investment decision. What returns are you getting? What is the risk you're taking on? Um, 
I wouldn't normally recommend holding a single mortgage in an RSP that because it probably becomes one of your biggest assets yeah. uh, more than likely. Um, and you know, you want a well diversified portfolio. I mean, it depends what your other other investments look like and where they're held and everything else. But you know, uh, I, I would just be very cautious about lending money on a one-off basis on individual mortgages. A pool of mortgages makes a lot more sense um, because if something goes wrong, one goes bad, you're still making good returns. Um, so that's the first thing I'd say. But and, and, and the topic of an R, a non-arms leg mortgage is maybe a top, topic for another day. But, um, I, you know, with the interest rates being so low today, it's probably not a good idea because – you have to have a, a market interest rate on the mortgage you're lending to yourself. And what that will do is effectively result in a fairly low return inside your RSP. Whereas if you invest uh, in, a, in a basket of mortgages with a, a company or a firm that, that, that specializes in mortgage, uh, placing money into mortgages, uh, you'll probably generate more like, you know, six to 9% or even more returns. That, that's really helpful to know, Tim. Now, uh, I think you also wrote an article recently, correct me if I'm wrong, it was kind of common RSP mistakes. And so I was thinking about that. And I know we've already talked about um, asset location today. Um, but maybe you can shed some light on other mistakes that you see people making that, that could be, you know, significant, costly. Any insight on this? Yeah, a um, couple of things come to mind. I think some of them are simple and easy to fix. Other ones are, you know, more complicated. You know, I think I think one of the common issues I see is that people will contribute to their RSPs and they assume that they should just automatically claim the, claim the tax deduction in that particular year, which, you know, for a lot of your listeners, maybe that's the right approach. But what you should be asking yourself is this, you know, when you put money into the RSP and you're entitled to an RSP deduction, um, you might be better off claiming that deduction maybe next year or even the year after that if your marginal tax rate is going to be higher in the future because you'll save more tax that way. Um, and it could be worth waiting a year for higher tax savings. So don't assume you have to deduct it in the year make, you make the contribution. Um, another mistake we see once in a while is, and this happens quite often, spouses will give money, one spouse will give money to another spouse for them to can then contribute to their own RSP. Not, not a spousal RSP. So it's not me putting money into a spousal plan for my spouse. What it is, is me giving money to my spouse for him or her to put money into their own RSP. And actually, um, a technical analysis of the tax law and of what if you ask CRA the question, they'll say, well, the attribution rule should now apply in that situation because withdrawals from an RSP are considered to be, quote unquote, income from property. And income from property is subject to the attribution rules. So if I give money to my spouse to contribute to her own RSP and she makes withdrawals, well, technically, that withdrawal should be taxed on my hands. We don't see it applied very often. Um, but technically it's, it's the correct interpretation of the law. And I think you have to be careful that, so you'd be better off putting money into a spousal RSP. Um, if you want to lend, if you want to give money to your spouse to contribute to their own RSP, uh, go ahead, just recognize there may be a risk there. That's interesting. So that, that's a good follow-up to spousal RSPs because I was just thinking for this year, so I can't just give my wife money and tell her, Hey, go put it in your RSP. That's not the right way to do it. That's what you're saying, right? Like this has to be a dedicated spousal RSP. Okay. That's the way I would do it. Um, you know, are you going to get caught if you do it the other way? Maybe not. Probably not, in fact, but technically it's not right. So, okay. Okay. That's really helpful to know. I did want to ask one question on in-kind transfers. So I guess, you know, if you want to contribute to an RSP, this could be happening to me this year. Uh, where you don't have as much cash available to, to contribute and you maybe want to, you know, shift shares of some stocks. 
kind of what are what are some considerations in doing this? Like, could I could I do it from my my corporation if I had some like you know U.S. holdings that pay dividends, and I just want to shift them over to the RSP to make it more tax efficient? And you know, are there implications if you're moving a uh, a winner or a loser? Yeah, for sure. Well, regardless of where you transfer the the, the investment from, whether it's from your personal hands or your corporation. There's going to be a deemed disposition at fair market value of that asset you're transferring to the RSP. So from that's the one thing. So you may have a capital gain or a capital loss either in your corporation or your personal hands just by making the transfer. Um, that's a problem if it's a capital loss uh, because a capital loss will be denied if you transfer a pro, you know an asset from your personal hands to your RSP um, and you realize a loss in the process. Yes, you're entitled to a tax deduction, for the RSP contribution for sure, but the loss you trigger would be denied. So what you're better off doing is actually selling an asset in that case on the open market, taking the cash, contributing that to your RSP. And even in the case of a corporation, I would prefer to see you uh, maybe pay the money out to yourself. Um, or you can, have your, you can have your corporation sell the asset first and then take the cash and contribute the cash to your RSP. Here's, here's a small benefit people might, be, might be, want to be a – take advantage of. If your corporation contributes to your RSP on your behalf, it still gets reported as salary, like a T4, included on your T4 slip, okay? But you can avoid the withholding tax. You can avoid the the income tax withholdings that would normally get sent to CRA. Okay. That more money makes its way into your RSP by doing that. Okay. Um, And um, so effectively what you're doing is you're kind of getting your tax refund up front. Mm Mm-hmm going into your RSP by the, the corporations putting it there. So that's kind of, that's the uh, the effect of that. So um, that's probably better than even paying yourself salary, paying withholding tax, then taking whatever's left over and putting that into your RSP. Tim, that's super useful. I didn't know that. Um, but you know what? Probably enough questions uh, for today. You know, you've given us so much good information to think about. You know, Tim, I have to say, I think you're always regarded as one of the most respected voices when it comes to tax, personal finance in Canada. And, you know, anytime I have the chance to sit down and, and talk to somebody like you, it's uh, it's a real privilege and honestly a real honor. And I just really, you know, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Well, that's, that's kind of you. And I'm, I'm glad to help anytime. I enjoy this. And uh, Yatin, it's been really a uh, pleasure talking with you and wish you and uh, your all your podcast listeners uh, safety and good health. And uh, we'll do this again sometime. Hey, thanks, Tim. Really appreciate that. You as well. Thanks. All right. So a lot of information today. So let's create a few take-home points. So I'm very lucky to have the chance to talk to people like Tim Sesnick, Jamie Golenbeck, and Ali Spinner. And basically all of them support the role for RSPs for incorporated professionals. So what are some things that we need to keep in mind? Well, we talked a bit about asset location today. So if you hold fixed income, then RRSP is certainly the best spot to hold that. And for anybody who holds equities that pay foreign dividends, from a tax efficiency perspective, perhaps consider holding some of that in your RRSP. But I certainly do agree with some of the advice that was given today in the sense that do not let the tax tail wag the investment dog. Very practical advice. We talked a bit about the spousal RRSP, and this can be a very useful tool when you're trying to plan out cash flow in retirement, and certainly a great way to share some income. But remember, if you're going to do it properly, uh, do consider putting the money into a dedicated spousal RRSP. 
the deduction on taxable income that comes with the RSP contribution. So remember that the deduction does not need to be claimed in the same year that you're making the contribution. Now, I understand that for many people listening, this may not matter year to year, but who knows, depending on your personal circumstances, you can use this tool to your to your advantage. And of course, we talked about some big picture stuff today. So I also really believe that a diversified portfolio is more than just stocks and bonds. So I encourage people to be really open minded when it comes to things like real estate and private equity. The more we learn, the better off we're going to be. And we also touched today on the individual pension plan, the IPP. So I'm learning more about this as we go. Certainly a lot of pros, probably more pros and cons to this. So if you're getting to that stage in your career, certainly take the time to learn more about it. And so when it comes to IPPs, real estate, private equity, there will be dedicated episodes on the podcast later on. So for everybody who's been tuning into the podcast, taking the time to give me feedback and reviews, I really, really appreciate it. You have no idea. And for anybody who's enjoying the content, please feel free to download, subscribe, and spread the word. Until next time, when things get a bit spicier as we dive into cryptocurrency, stay safe, everyone, and stay savvy.